You know, um, I think this morning is a, just a little test of my own pride and um, God just saying, you are just way too ready for today. So I'm going to throw every little obstacle in the way, like waking up late, having trouble getting here, losing my phone. So if somebody finds a phone out there, you know, I could have swore when I sat down, I had my phone with me. So I probably left it in the bathroom. So if you find a yellow phone with a picture of a schnauzer on it, it's mine. I would love to have it back. Um, but that's my day this morning. I think it's really funny that that's how my day has started because what we're going to talk about this morning, I've actually taught a number of times. And so I haven't really been very stressed about it. And usually I get really nervous. I'm not a typical nervous person, but usually I do get really nervous before preaching. Um, but I wasn't today until about 15 minutes ago. Um, so that's my morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stacy Hill, and I am the small group discipleship director here at Journey. And uh, every once in a while, I get an opportunity to come up here and speak to you guys. And we are starting a series today on the Bible. A few weeks ago, Mark introduced the series on God, and we talked through the um, characteristics, some of the primary characteristics, even though there are a number of them that we could have talked about. And he said when we started it, that there's this question of, well, what do you start talking about first? Do you start talking about God or do you start talking about the Bible? And really the question comes down, well, of course you start with God because God is the beginning of everything. And then you move into the Bible because the Bible is what God has left us in a tangible way, sort of, of his word and what he has said to us. And so we move toward the Bible. Um, I told Mark a couple of days ago, I'm like, I sent him all my slides and I was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to have very many. I may add a few more. So I sent three more yesterday and I said, I think I'm done. And on the way here this morning, sometimes I just worry about how my brain works because I should have been thinking very much about the sermon. And instead of thinking about the sermon, I was thinking about a toilet paper commercial. Um, so Mark, if you will show the commercial. no idea why I thought about that commercial on my drive here this morning. And I walked in and I was like, Mark, I really want to show this commercial this morning. Can we get it done? And he's like, uh, maybe I'm not sure. And I was like, well, I think it'll actually really fit with the sermon today. And he's like, okay. And, um, and it's funny because as I was saying about, I love technology. I really do love technology. I try to go with my notes on the iPad and I even write my notes on the iPad. I use it for as much as possible, even though I actually prefer paper, but it's way easier to keep up with one thing and I can organize all my notes and I can do everything for school. I can carry it around. So I love technology. So it's really funny to watch this guy go around kind of berating his wife for not using technology, not using technology, something against paper thinking it's antiquated, right? He's like, oh, there's something so much better than paper. It's technology. And so 
he keeps giving her a hard time, gets, gives a, giving her a hard time and gets to the bathroom and he's stuck without toilet paper and she slides the little iPad or tablet underneath the door and what does he find out? The paper isn't really all that antiquated, right? Well, how many times have you heard that about the Bible? How many times have you heard, ah, the Bible is so old, it's irrelevant, it's not applicable to our life today. There's been a ton of time and history that has passed. There's no way that what is in the Bible is accurate and applicable to our lives today. But even as Christians, we do the same thing, right? We grab on to what's new, the new biblical psychology, those self-help books, whatever the newest hottest preacher is saying, and we grab onto that, and we're not actually applying the Bible to our lives every day. And then we get stuck in an emergency situation, and we want the real thing. And we're missing it every other time. And so part of what we want to do when we open up this series on the Bible is to help you see and understand that the Bible is not something that's antiquated. It's not something that has been changed over time. And it is something that is incredibly applicable to our lives every single day. It's really cool how that works, and I don't know why God did that through a toilet paper commercial, but there we go. Um, So um, last summer, Nikki and my mom and I traveled to China, and I had gone a little early, a lot early actually, and I had been staying with my best Chinese friend and her husband and their little girl, and Chinese apartments are super tiny. And so I was actually sharing a bedroom with their nine-year-old daughter, and uh, she did not like to go to sleep at night. So here I am, jet-lagged from traveling, 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 and we would go to bed, and she would just talk and talk and talk and talk. And so I'm exhausted trying to listen and speak Mandarin way late at night, way later than a nine-year-old should be awake, and we have these great conversations, just really cool conversations. And one night... We were talking, and she was talking about being afraid. And uh, so we started talking about different fears that we had. And, I, you know, she was sharing some of the things that she was afraid of, and I was sharing her, with her some of the things that I was afraid of. And so I used that opportunity to, to kind of turn it and get, give a little bit of the gospel and talk about how now I can give those fears over to Jesus. And she's like, well, tell me a little bit about Jesus. She goes, We talk about myths in school all the time. Now, it took us a few minutes because I don't typically talk about myths in my everyday life in China. So we had to work out the word for myth a little bit. And it's really interesting because the word for myth is shenhua, which means God speaks or gods in the little general sense. So it's interesting that even the term for mythology has a placement in the term of um, God speaking, which made sense when I learned the word because I've never heard a Christian say God speaks, it's, or in terms of the Bible, it's God, the words of God is how they say it. So they distinguish how they say mythology, even though the words are very similar in Mandarin. And so as we turned it, she was like, man, we learn about mythology all the time at school. And so she talks about the Greek mythology and a couple of people that I, you know, couldn't translate very well. And uh, she's like, I've heard about the Bible. They say it's myth also. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not myth. It's true. It's a real story. And so I had the opportunity to kind of share a little bit in very general brief um, at this, like probably 11 o'clock at night story of the Bible with her. And she was like, that is so amazing. How would you know that's true? And I ask you the same thing. 
how do you know that the Bible is different and distinguished from mythology? If someone were to come up and talk to you and ask you how you could defend the Old and New Testament documents, would you be able to do so? Could you have that conversation intelligibly with somebody who didn't know and understand the background of their faith or maybe who didn't come with the presupposition that the Bible is true? Oftentimes, we just take it on faith, which is great that we have that faith in Christ, but it's also important that we have legitimate external reasons for being able to base our faith in something that's so incredibly important. 1 Peter 3.15, I don't think I got this on the slide, but if I did, um, it says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I think there are two things that are incredibly important. We always need to be ready with an answer. And secondly... We have to do it with gentleness and respect. And I think that is so important because we often miss the gentleness and respect. We often think we have the answers, but we miss the gentleness and respect part of it and engaging with other people. So today, I really want to spend some time speaking to you about why we can trust that the New Testament documents are accurate and reliable, or the Old and New Testament documents are accurate, reliable sources of information, and that we can believe the things that are written in them. Before I get too far in this, um, I really need to say that most of my information comes from a man named Norman Geisler. He is one of the leading apologists um, in contemporary society today. Um, So if you went out and did a lot of research on him, probably everything I'm going to say, I heard a sermon that he did one time called History and Mythology. So i got to give a big part of today's credit to him, um, and most of my research came from there. Um, And Sir Frederick Kenyon, if you're interested, he's a great resource. Colin Hemmer, William Albright, and then I also have used a website called probe.org. I'm going to leave out a ton of information today because there's simply too much evidence. That's, that's just how it goes. There's just way too much evidence. It's practically overwhelming that I'm going to miss it. But if you want, there are some resources for you out there. Um, when it comes to talking about the Old and New Testament, or specifically the Old, there's some good news and some bad news. We started calling the Bible the canon way back in 3rd century, 3rd or 4th century A.D., And the word canon is really cool because it means measuring stick. The Bible is our measuring stick for the rest of our lives. It's what we're trying to measure up to. Now, most of us, well, that's a measuring stick that we will never meet, right? We will never get that tall. And that's the point, is that we will never attain on our own the measuring stick set out before us. And in ancient Jewish history, they had scribes that would be meticulous in writing down the scriptures. They had certain materials they used. They, on their scrolls, had a certain number of lines and pages, columns. They, do, they wrote absolutely nothing from memory. So every little letter that they wrote, they looked at the previous copy and then they wrote it down. And they looked at the previous copy and wrote it down. So even if it, it was the word the, and they knew T-H-E, They looked at the T, they looked at the H, and they looked at the E, everything they wrote down. Absolutely meticulous. Every time they wrote the name of God, they stopped, had a religious ceremony, and then wrote the name of God. 
think about the Old Testament. How many times is the name of God written in the Old Testament? It's like every chapter. You can't really get away with it. And so they were consistently turning to God and worship to him in writing the scriptures. However, here's the bad news. Any copy with just one mistake was thrown away. So they might have gotten to the very last line of the book of Isaiah and they wrote the word wrong and they start the whole scroll all over again. They didn't just scratch it out. They didn't erase it. They scrapped the whole scroll, threw it away and started over. Not only did they scrap mistakes that they made and started over, any time the parchment started to wear or fade, they would either burn it or bury it. They thought that the scripture was to be so highly regarded and they were so afraid that someone would misread, misinterpret, or miscopy the scripture if it was faded or worn that they would bury and burn or burn any of the old copies. So we have very few, actually almost no, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And that's a little scary. For somebody like me who really wants proof, I'm like, oh, where are those scriptures? I want that proof and I want to know what it says. And so I get really nervous. However, on the flip side, there's a lot of really, really great news about the Old Testament. The copies that we do have have several bits of external evidence. It's absolutely abundant in what we have. So what we'll see is that the first copies that we have are from different areas of the world and they match each other. So copies of the scripture that were found in Palestine and in Egypt and in Syria, all of those copies, when you compare them in their translations, they match. And so you see a lot of integration there across from the different areas of the world. Secondly, we see that the, the copies that we do have match the Septuagint, and I'll come back to this in just a second. And the third thing that we're going to see, which probably many of you will recognize, is that they also correspond with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? So they have external evidence, they match the Septuagint, and they, they agree with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Has anybody ever heard of the Septuagint? It's pretty neat. Um, the Septuagint was written sometime between 300 and 100 B.C. They're not exactly sure Let's pick 200 because that's kind of in the middle, okay? And it's a Latin translation, and it's, the Septuagint is 70 because the, the history says that there were about 70 men who came together to translate the Old Hebrew Testament into Latin. So about 300 to 100 years, so even if we just took 100 years, the Old Testament canon was closed and considered the Old Testament 100 years before Christ was born. So that was pretty cool that, the, that we have something that's over 2,000 years old at this time. Then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Does anybody remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? I don't know. We might have one or two people that might have actually been alive when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I'm not sure. Um, in 1947, right on the tail end of World War II. Okay, so think about what you know is happening in history at World War II. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They're also known as the Qumran text because it was a, called the Qumran community at the time. They were found in 1947, and they date back as far as 150 B.C. to 70 A.D., so really spanning 150 years before Christ to 70 years after Christ, or 40 years after his death anyway. And um, 
what was really amazing, you might know the story, is shepherd boy walking around in Palestine tossing rocks. He's tossing rocks, and he tosses a rock up into a cave, and he hears this shatter. And he's like, what in the world just happened? And so he leaves his sheep, which you know shepherds aren't supposed to do. He leaves his sheep, and he goes up into the cave to explore, and he gets in there, and he finds all these clay jars that have, it turns out, been there for centuries preserving ancient manuscripts that were written in Hebrew and some other uh, Aramaic and I think some Greek texts. So they had lots of different matches and they found a lot of historic documents that matched the Hebrew text, the Old Testament text. Now here's what makes the the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls so amazing. They weren't found until 1,947 years after the first, first year, right? So 1,900 years, and they are matching what is called the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text was started in around 900 A.D., okay? Prior to finding the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, there was a Jewish community called the Masoretes, And they would write and copy, very much according to Jewish tradition, the the Hebrew Bible. So we started having the Hebrew Bible again, and they were copying it. But we didn't have any documents those prior 900 years that attested to the Hebrew Bible before then. So only the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So for 900 years, we have no Hebrew translation. And then a thousand years later, in 1947, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in 1947, they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they see that the thousand years between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the finding of the, or the starting of the Masoretic text, the texts were virtually unchanged. When you compare the translations of the text, the Hebrew text in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Hebrew text of the Masoretic, um, Masoretic text, there's no translation. So over a thousand years, God protected his word and the transmission of it throughout history so that it was unchanged. Then you take another thousand years, right, from 1900 to 1947, you have another 1,000 years with unchanged text because it matches the Bible that we have today and that we use now. So therefore, you have over two thousand years where there is very little to no change in the Old Testament text. If you can't speak to the authority and supremacy of our God to be able to protect a text for that long without changing it, I don't know what could. It's absolutely amazing that he could do so. Um, When they found this and they started comparing, um, they found one complete copy of Isaiah chapter 53 It was found to be 95% accurate with a Masoretic text, and the 5%, 5% difference were just slips of the pen and variations in spelling. So virtually exactly the same. Norman Geisler, in his book, When Skeptics Ask, says, The main reason for all this consistency is that the scribes who made the copies had a profound reverence for the text. Jewish traditions laid out every aspect of complying text as if it were law, from the kind of materials to be used to how many columns and lines were to be on a page. Nothing was to be written from memory. 
There was even a religious ceremony to perform each time the name of God was written. Any copy with just one mistake was destroyed. This guarantees us that there has been no substantial chance in the change, I think that's supposed to say change, in the text of the Old Testament in the last 2,000 years and evidence that there was probably very little change before that. If you take that with that very little change and you can go back to the understanding that the Old Testament was solidified at a bare minimum a hundred years before Christ, and you start to compare the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, you know that you can undoubtedly trust the Old Testament because of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. I did a quick search. There are something like 300 or 400 prophecies predicted about what would be fulfilled in the life of Christ. And one mathematician says that if only eight of those prophecies had come true, it would have been 10 to the 17th of a probability. 10 to the 17th probability that eight of those 300 to 400 prophecies would be fulfilled. That is 17 zeros. You know how many zeros a billion has in it? Nine. A billion has nine zeros, but we're looking at something that has 17 zeros. If you take all of the prophecies that were predicted about Christ and put them together and take the probability that they would be fulfilled in one man, you're looking at something around 157 zeros. 157 zeros. That's the probability that all of that would be fulfilled in one man. It's practically impossible unless it is supernatural. There's the only way that it could be possible that those would be fulfilled. And so we can be 100% certain that the Old Testament is reliable text and that we can really believe that God has preserved preserved it for us. The New Testament, contrary to the Old Testament, has a ton of evidence that we can rely on. In fact, it absolutely blows every other ancient text out of the water in its accuracy and reliability. Um, When we talk about the New Testament... We talk about it in terms of, is it being copied accurately? And were the writers recording the events accurately? So is it copied accurately, and did they record the events accurately? Um, If you want to go ahead and throw up that uh, slide with the table on it, we'll just leave that up so everybody can look at it while I talk. So what we'll notice first is that we have more manuscripts than any other book in the ancient world. We have 5,000, approximately 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts that were handwritten. That's a ton of documents. What you'll notice up here, this is the author, the date that it was considered written, the earliest actual copy we have. So how long, like when did they think it was written? When did the first fragment start to be found? The time span is the time span between it was written or the events happened and um, when they have a copy, and then the number of MSS is number of manuscripts. Okay, so number of manuscripts. So you'll notice down here is the New Testament. That 5,700 is the Greek documents that we have. I'll explain the rest here in a second. Notice it compares to most of the time averaging only 10 to 20 for every other document that we have. I think I put Sophocles up here um, at 193 which doesn't happen too often, but I tried to pick the ones that I thought you might know the most. Um, But most everybody else has um, 10 or less. Homer's Iliad 
which most of us have heard about Homer's Iliad, has 643 copies, um, and that's the next largest number that we have. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, most of us know about Julius Caesar, if for no other reason than Shakespeare. We know who Julius Caesar is. There's only 10 copies of Julius Caesar's, and it was written 1,000 years after the event. But yet no one doubts the authenticity of Homer's Iliad or the existence of Julius Caesar. We also have earlier manuscripts. We have manuscripts that were found just 25 years after John was written. John 18 was found in 115 AD. So only 25 years um, after the events um, we find, or after John was written, we find the fragments. Most of the other ones you'll see are averaging out at about 1,000 years. So we're looking at documents that we have found written without 25 years compared to documents that were found within a 1,000 years of their, their writing. All the Gospels were combi- compiled, um, the Chester Beatty and the Bodmer Papyri, within 100 years. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were solidified and being used by each other or other New Testament writers within 100 years of the, the events, and the, new, the entire New Testament was closed within 150 years, which is unheard of in any other textual evidence. As you'll notice, most are years and years and years gapped. We also have more accurately copied manuscripts than any other book in the ancient world. The Mahabharata, I, many people don't know that, but it's a famous Indian story And it is um, only 90% accurate. It's about 10% corruption in all the copies that they have. Homer's Iliad is believed to have 5% corruption. Again, 95% accurate. But everybody believes that it is um, accurate and believable that Homer actually wrote it. However, the New Testament, when you compare the manuscripts, only has 1% corruption. 1%, 99%. And in fact, one of the the researchers says that it's actually only 0.01 by the time you take out the differences in the spelling for the or missing and and um, that sort of thing. And so they say it's 99.9% accurate. And Norman Geisler jokes and says it's more pure than ivory soap because ivory soap is 99.4%. But we can look at the New Testament and say that it is 99% 99.9% accurate. Now you'll notice that I have another number written out there to the side of the 5,700, and it's the 24,000. If you extend the Greek manuscripts to everything that was written in Aramaic and Egyptian, Ethiopian, Coptic, Latin, then we have almost 24,000 copies of ancient New Testament documents that are dating back all the way to the 3rd century. Sir Frederick Frederick Kenyon says, the number of manuscripts is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of doubtful passages is preserved in some one or the other of the ancient authorities. It is certain that we have the correct text in the documents that we have. I love this little bit of information here. There are a group of men called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. It means the the early church fathers. Um, So before the church was seriously established across um, most of the world, 
we had this group of men who were writing um, kind of like uh, commentaries on the New Testament, helping people understand it. And so um, anti- the Nicene Creed came in 350. And bef- so the, before the Nicene Creed, all the church fathers that were writing, if you were to take the fi- 5,700 Greek manuscripts and the 15 plus thousand of the Ethiopic um, Coptic Latin manuscripts, and you destroyed all three billion Bibles that we currently have today that are printed in the world today, if you threw them all away, you burned them and said they are no more and they were no longer in existence, you could go back to the writings of the first three centuries and recreate the entire New Testament, the entire New Testament with the exception of a few verses from 3 John. That is how much was being written on the New Testament that early on in history. So even if we destroyed everything that we had, we could recreate it from the early church father's writings, which just blows my mind. Um, and Third John is very rarely preached on, so how, you know, it's probably not uncommon that they were very rarely using it at that time. So it's really amazing that we have that much evidence to the early writings. So next, after we look at are the documents copied accurately, we have to look at the writers. And I think this is really the more important thing because who cares if it was copied for thousands of years correctly if what was copied was wrong, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's copied wrong. Anybody been watching the debates lately? Anybody watched the debates with CNN? You know, CNN has that fact checker, and they, as they're having the debate, they go through and they say, Oh, this person, what they said was true. This person, what they said was false. And usually you can guess, depending on who's speaking, whether what's coming out of their mouth is true or false, right? Like usually you don't need CNN to be that fact checker. But it's nice to have that fact checker. Well, same thing with the New Testament. It doesn't matter if it was copied correctly if our fact checker turns out to be false all the time because then we know that we don't have reliable resources But what we're going to find out is that the resources and the people writing them were incredibly reliable. Depending on how you look at the Old Testament, we have eight or nine writers. It depends on Hebrews. Hebrews could be written by Paul. They're unsure whether or not it was. Um, So if Hebrews was written by Paul, then there were eight writers for the Old Testament. If Hebrews was not written by Paul, there were nine writers. There is Almost no other historical event of people writing about events of the time where more than one person was writing about it. But here we have the New Testament with nine individuals writing about the same events, which is unheard of in history. Not, all, not only are they all writing about the same events, but they were actually eyewitnesses of the events. So they actually saw what was going on day to day to day. They had incredibly developed memories. I really wish I had a memory like this. They could memorize 100,000 words. 100,000 words. That is an immense amount of information. So when they're telling stories and they're living these, these elements and events with Christ, they are able to memorize it with an incredible clarity that most of us can't even comprehend at this time. And not only were they able to memorize 100,000 words to retell the stories that they were experiencing, they were experiencing what we call impact events. Think about this. Those of you who are old enough, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? How about 
the Challenger when the Challenger exploded. Maybe for those of us who are a little younger, how about 9-11? I can remember with complete clarity the morning 9-11, I'm sitting in my college apartment bedroom on my bed. I can remember what bed, bed sheets I had on. I remember my comforter. I remember leaning against the headboard, having a quiet time, actually, and my phone rings. I picked up the phone, and it's my mom, and she's like, Stacy, you are not going to believe this. A plane has flown into the World Trade Center, and I was like, what? That's not true. So I go in, I turn on the TV, and there's already a plane in World Trade Center, and it's on fire, and I was sitting there watching as the second plane hit the tower. I will never forget that moment. But that's what the New Testament writers, the gospels were, gospel writers were experiencing every day. It was impact event after impact event after impact event. It may even be something small that you're going to remember. I can remember a journey retreat a few years ago after a really great time. Leslie walked up to me and gave me this lion bookmark. I still have the lion bookmark. I know exactly what she was telling me when she handed me that lion bookmark. A little moment, Right? Not a big historical event, but I remember exactly the moment that she gave me that bookmark and what it meant. That's an impact event. It doesn't have to be huge national news for it to be an impact event on your life. But that's what these guys were experiencing day in and day out in their life with Christ. John 14, 26 um, says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So not only did they have highly developed memories, not only did they experience impact event after impact event, but they had the Holy Spirit behind them, helping them know exactly what to write in the way that it should be written. Let's look at the actual people and who they were. Matthew was an apostle, so he was eyewitness. Mark was an associate of Matthew. John was an apostle. Luke was an associate of the apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle and wrote 13 or 14 books, depending on Hebrews again. Peter was an apostle. James was the brother of Jesus. And Jude was the brother of James, the other James, the apostle. Now think about this with James, the brother of Jesus, who also wrote a New Testament book. How many of you with brothers and sisters are going to write a book about your brother or sister being God? Nobody, right? Nobody's going to do that because you know what it's like to live with your brother or sister. You know that your brother and sister aren't God. They're not perfect. They didn't live a sinful life and die and rise again. But here we have Jude or James, the brother of Jesus, doing that exact thing. I think that's an interesting perspective to take. Paul, I love, in 1 Corinthians, he challenges the people in 1 Corinthians to go out. He says, um, there were 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So when he's writing to the Corinthians way before 100 AD, he's practically saying, there were 500 people who are still alive. Go ask them if you don't believe me. If you don't think I'm trustworthy enough, go find one of 500. Surely one of those 500 will be somebody that you can trust. And he really kind of challenges them in that area. Luke, you may know 
is actually considered a historian by a lot of people and people who don't even believe the Old Testament or the New Testament and don't believe the existence of God will say that Luke is one of the premier historians of ancient Greece. Um, Colin Hemmer says that in over 100 details in the book of Acts, he never once made a mistake. Never once. A hundred details. I probably couldn't tell you a hundred details about yesterday without making a mistake. But Luke never once made a mistake in the book of Acts. And the same is true. He gives about 31 names and dates in um, between the Gospels and Acts. And none of those have been, true, been proven false. They're actually all been proven true. That the people existed in the places and at the times in which Luke said they existed. Now what's interesting about Luke is if you take Acts, the Gospel of Luke was written before Acts, and Mark was written before Luke. They think that Mark was written before Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and most of John all say the exact same thing, pretty much. They give the same ideas, same testimony. And so you have all of this early documents with corroborating evidence between other writers um, that just really um, puts all of that together. Um, so what we find, there's really smart people who spent time in history, and that's not me, um, and they have figured out that to, for a myth to develop, you need at least 30 years, okay? It cannot be done because you still have people who are eyewitnesses alive. So it's impossible for any of these events to have occurred and have been written down and not to be proven false at this time. So there's no way a myth could have developed at this time. Not only do, do we see that they were very accurate writers and more writers, we see that they were earlier writers. Um, they all wrote before 100 AD, they think. Um, even people on the high end will say that the New Testament books were written between 70 and 150 and as we saw earlier, that's people who don't believe in the Bible will at least say, okay, we've got to give in and say that these documents, at the very latest, were written down by 150 A.D. That's still earlier than everything we looked at in that table just a few minutes ago. So even then, you can see that we have earlier documents than any other book. Um, I think it's very interesting have you guys heard of the people who talk about the Holocaust never happening? You, you hear that people are saying, oh, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, I probably butchered his name, in a 2003 article from the Washington Post, um, the writer says, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad on Wednesday called the extermination of six million Jews during World War II a myth bringing a new cascade of international condemnation onto a government that is increasing, increasingly viewed as radical, even within Iran. They have created a myth in the name of the Holocaust and considered it above God, religion, and the prophets, Ahmadinejad said in an address carried live on state television. Well, here's the problem. There are thousands of people that were alive at that time attesting to the events. There's no way that it's not true that the Holocaust happened because even just the other day, I saw a video where they had taken a drone 
and flown it over Auschwitz and the camp. And they were just, it's expansive. So there's even archaeological evidence that the Holocaust took place. And so when something like that is in existence, when people who were experienced it are still alive, you can't create a myth. And that's the exact same position that we're in with the New Testament document documents. We also see that the New Testament writers were more accurate writers. Um, I think it's really funny to consider the individuals themselves. They were self-incriminating. If I'm going to write something that I really want everybody to know is true and good, I am sure not going to put something embarrassing in it unless it's true, right? Like, I'm sure not going to embarrass me. I don't like to be embarrassed. I try my hardest to avoid embarrassment. And so I'm not going to put an embarrassing fact on something that's not true. So if I'm going to say or tell you something that's embarrassing to me, I'm at least going to tell you the truth about it. And so you would never do that. Um, One would be Peter letting Mark write down um, that he denied Christ. (coughs) Or Jesus calling Peter Satan. You wouldn't want to be called Satan in a book where you're trying to make yourself look good, right? Um, So... Um, what we also see is that there is no attempt to harmonize the accounts. Um, you guys ever watch crime shows where they're trying to decide if the witness's testimony or the criminal's testimony is accurate or not? And they, they say that one of the best ways to decide whether a criminal's testimony, if there are multiple criminals, is how closely their stories relate, right? If their stories are too close together, too word for word, then you know that they've sat there, corroborated, and kind of figured out a story that's going to make them look good. So it actually works out better that we don't have a word-for-word match in the New Testament because you have a real individual's perspective of the events that happened. And just because it's two people telling the story in different words, we leave here today and you talk about the sermon, you're going to tell different points of the sermon, and it might all be true, right? But if somebody heard... Leslie's story versus somebody hearing Allison's story, then you're going to look at that and go, oh, well, what really happened? Well, both happened. I talked both about the documents and the writers. If Leslie talks about the writers and Allison talks about the documents, but only until you get it together do you realize we're really all talking about the same thing. And so it's better in that, in that situation that we have these different but corresponding accounts in the New Testament. Um, they were very clear about identifying Jesus's words. Um, they made sure that in Greek, they didn't separate with periods or quotations or anything, but you could sit down and go through without a red letter Bible and pick out Jesus's words because the writers were so clear about saying Jesus said, um, they left many difficult things in, um, including stuff like eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is a really hard thing for a lot of people to understand, but they left that in there. And if you wanted it to be easy, you would have taken something like that out, but they didn't because that is something that Jesus said. Um, I think another interesting point is that the Gospels have women testifying to the resurrection before any of the men do, and they are giving witness to that. At this time in history, Women's testimony was not admitted by law in court for any reason. Women just weren't trusted. But here we have the New Testament Gospels proclaiming 
that women were the first to see the risen Christ, and they put it in there, which goes contrary to culture at their time. And so if they were trying to make it look good, they would not have done that because they wouldn't want women being the ones that were corroborating the evidence. They made reference, I've already mentioned several times, to the historical events, Luke being uh, accurate to 100 times and 31 references to events and people. But here's the thing that I think stands out above and beyond everything, and this is really where I put a lot of my faith and my trust. You know, when we watched the planes fly into the World Trade Centers in 9-11, we watched men who were dying for something they believed in. And we've seen it happen time and time again ever since. Even today, people are dying for things that they believe are true. Okay? We know that that's possible. We've seen it all of our lives. However, you don't have eight to nine people writing about something that is not true and then dying for it. No one dies for something that they know is false. You just don't do it. Now, you might die for someone you love, even if they've done a bad thing. You might die for something you believe in, even though it's not true, but you believe in it. But you will not die for something that you know is false. And every apostle, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death for something that they knew was true. And if that doesn't stir you and shake you and tell you that we have an incredible God who is able to protect his word for over 2,000 years and on the end of a world war have us discover ancient texts that corroborate that and then give us so many more New Testament texts that over and abundantly exceed anything that we trust in the ancient world that we believe is true without a doubt, I don't know what does, because that is amazing. Because God has given us his word. He has shored it up. He has said, this is true, and I'm going to give you external evidence to say that this is true. Even atheists believe that the documents were written by the people that they were written by when they were written. They don't deny it. And so we can fully rely on this. And so when we encounter somebody who's asking those hard questions, who's doubting what's going on, or who believes that, like paper, the Bible is antiquated, we have a way to respond with an answer in gentleness and respect. Thanks, guys. As the band comes up, if you guys uh, don't mind praying with me for a minute. Jesus, we just thank you and praise you for the awesome supremacy that you have to have protected your word. Father, that we could come um, in full assurance and faith beyond something that is um, loose and unsubstantiated and look deeper into the evidence that you have given us. Father, 
I pray that we can walk out of here today knowing and trusting that um, we have a firm foundation on your word, that we know that it is true, that we can trust it, and that we can rely on it, and that we can give ourselves in whatever way you ask, because we are not dying or would not die for something that is false. Father, that we could offer our lives as living sacrifices and possibly even sacrifices for a word that we know is true. Amen.